Off to a hot start this Friday afternoon here on the Bad Signal Podcast. What's up, guys? Courtney Fallon. I don't know if there's any real way to top last week's Lewis Riddick making a very quotable quote about Bill Belichick and his approach to the offseason, making its rounds around the local and national media. That was fun. That was fun. So if you're new to the show, hello, welcome. Hope you enjoy it. I had this whole entire rant about Brad Stevens and why he should be fired almost immediately from the last placed Eastern Conference, Boston Celtics. I hate to say I knew it, but I knew it, and I kind of been calling it. If you want to jump back to a couple of previous shows, my showdown with Ryan Rossillo late in that interview, we got hot and heavy about Danny Ainge and the roster of this Boston Celtics team. Anyways, I hit record, recorded about 20, 25 minutes, and it wasn't working. So... We're just going to keep this light and short and not blow a fuse here. We have a great show on deck today. Seth Wickersham joins us. Coincidentally, I wanted to have him on the show because he has a new book about Brady and Belichick coming out in October. It's called it's Better to Be Feared. It's Better to Be Feared. Yes, another book about the Patriots dynasty. Well, as Seth Wickersham loves to take deep dives, he has had some pretty controversial articles about the Patriots, including the issues they were having inside that building in 2018 with Brady and Alex Guerrero and Bill Belichick. He knows a lot about the organization. So uh, not only do I ask him about the dysfunction and what really went down, what was the true succession plan since he's, since he's got his ear to all his sources, what really went down, what his thoughts are about Tom's departure, all that fun stuff. If he's had any backlash great part of the interview but uh, coincidentally he had a fantastic article that was a brilliant portrait of the much maligned head of the nfl players association demora smith with decorated journalist don van nada as they often do they write epic editorials and it gets a lot of attention so uh definitely had to talk about that article first so on that note here's seth wickersham seth wickersham in the house what's up how you living off-season life yeah, off-season life. Usually off-season would mean you're at home more. Of course, this off-season means that nothing has changed and you're still at home. So here I am. But this is definitely like the optimal time for you to debut a deep dive. Right? I, I, like, I, this, I feel like there is no better time to debut and just drop a bomb on everyone's lap. But it almost seems like the off-season is the preferred season right now for reporters with pandemic we've gotten used to not having sports so this is kind of where you're thriving no i hope so you know yeah don van Ad and i we did we did our our story on d smith and it was one that we had been working on for a while and i guess we're just if it landed at a good time and this is the time it happened to land that's awesome we're really happy about that yeah let's talk about that because it was a deep dive into the NFL Players Association, and we have seen over the years, especially during the 2011 lockout, where I was listening to Don and Pablo Torre go through the details of that lockout and how he really was speaking for the owners and lying to the players. And um, is there a bigger charlatan than than Demora Smith? You know, being executive director of the NFL Players Association is a really hard job. <laughs> And you're dealing with a constituency that, you know, they have, everybody has different priorities. What 
Aaron Rodgers thinks is right is quite a bit different than what a a practice squad player thinks is right, which is quite a bit different than a guy who's been in the league for four or five years and hoping that, you know, he's finally able to cash in on his free agency for the first time. So, you know, this stuff is, it's a difficult, difficult job. And I think that like what we wanted to look at was rewind to a year ago. You've got this collective bargaining agreement that passes by a razor thin margin, 60 votes, yep, yep. 500 players didn't vote. Lord, what what are they doing by the way? Yeah. <laughs> 500 players were like, where are you on this? But either way, it, it barely, it barely passed. And, you know, to get it through, D Smith had to do all kinds of different things, including investigating one of his players who, you know, had been speaking out and went to maybe extreme things to do in the effort of transparency, not you don't see too many CBAs come together like that. And so I think that Don and I's repertorial antennas went up and we're like, you know, this is something we've really got to look at. It just took a long time to get that story ready um, before it ran. And so, and in the process of it all, I think we learned a lot about D Smith and what exactly his power is, how he chooses to deploy it. And, and this is the most interesting thing is that, you know, these two legacies, these, you know, at the heart of his tenure, which is number one, that he's delivered labor peace and more football for fans, which you could argue that's what they want. Mm-hmm. At the other end of things, you know, a lot of owners described it to us. He's an asset for management. And yeah. that's, a, yeah. that's a strange legacy to have. Yeah. I got a text from a player, a very prominent player, a captain on a football team. I won't disclose, but he was saying that he's not a fan of D. And anyone in the PA anymore, he's not a rep. He's stepped away from that because the people that have done the interviews for the board there were, let's say, as an understatement, shitty, as he quotes it. They, he said that either the background checks were bad, bad financial decisions, or they just wanted to get paid for the job, um, which I found to be very interesting because this particular player is extremely outspoken. And it just goes to show the divide that there is between the higher tier half of the NFL and uh, what was alarmingly remarkable was hearing that Drew Brees was making like $2 million in checks for being on the board versus 10 to 15,000. Um, there is such a divide between the upper tier of the NFL and the lower tier and the lower tier guys, they just want to get paid because that's their entire salary for the entire year. D- does DeMorris really care about the players? Like, who does he care about more? Is it the is it the superstars or is it uh, the, the guys that run the gears of this league? No, I think he cares a lot. You know, I, I really do. I think the question is, you know, again, what's a win? What's a win for Demora Smith when you do when you have these CBAs? So he got elected back in two thousand nine, and everybody knew that the league wanted to just drill the players in the 2011 CBA negotiations. It was telegraphed. It was obvious. And in March of 2011, in Washington, D.C., the league presented the players with what they said was a final offer. Otherwise, they were going to lock out the players. And um, the players uniformly and immediately rejected that offer. Mm -hmm. And we had that anecdote in the story about Jerry Jones 
speaking to a couple other owners. Owls and chickens and sexual relations. No, owls and chickens was trending on Twitter the other day. Like that's one for me. I've had a that sounds like such a like um boots on the ground, like a like something like a a Texas saying that we don't really know. It's just folklore. But you know, owls sleeping chickens is just, you know, everyone, everyone down there, they know what we're talking about. I know. I mean, and it's like in my in my career, I've had some weird ones that kind of took off, right? (laughs) Patriot of the week, inmates running the prisons, all this stuff, and owls and chickens I totally didn't see coming. But you know, that offer ended up being a billion dollars better than the one that the union ended up taking in um, July of that year that was helped brokered by Robert Kraft and Jeff Saturday. And so D. Smith had almost a, a, a decade to go back and think about mistakes that were made and to prepare for this unbelievably consequential CBA. And look what happened. I mean, they agreed to more work was it worth it? Do the players actually net out better? I think the rank and file players ended up doing okay. It looks like they're going to do okay over the next 10 years. But I mean, 10 years is a long time for a CBA. And we'll see how it plays out. We honestly, we don't know right now. I don't think that it's a matter of Smith caring or not about certain types of players. I think that it's, you know, what was realistic? What could he actually get accomplished? Remember, there's a lot of players who didn't even want a 17th game and were stunned that the union was negotiating a new CBA off of a 17th game baseline. Yeah, it's you know, there's a lot of transparency and communication issues um, that the union, you know, has to account for. Yeah, this particular player that I was um, engaging in a conversation this morning regarding your article and the NFLPA, uh, he suggested that a very smart and outspoken NFL player just needs to get a law degree. And then he needs to represent everyone on the PA because we might have medical doctors, uh, you know, and, and business graduates and all that. But I feel like that is the only thing that is missing. Is there a particular player or a group of players that could come together that can actually start to combat things that stand for the players against against D or is this the end of the road for him the best piece of leverage that the union has is the willingness to strike and to play football elsewhere that's it I mean that's the biggest piece of leverage by far management is willing to lock them out management is willing to go without football for a bit to put the squeeze on them the players are in a completely different situation Mm -hmm. a lot of these guys most of these guys, the vast majority of these guys, this is an incredibly big payday for them that they have a very small window for. And so even if they feel like that this is not an ideal collective bargaining agreement, they will go along with it because this is hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars at times for these players that, you know, this is an earning potential that they won't have the rest of their lives. And so again, it goes back to like, what is D Smith's power? Will a former player who has a law degree, like, I mean, Steve Young does, for instance, like would Steve Young be able to like come in and do better? I I don't know because if the players don't want to strike again, their leverage is automatically reduced. Their biggest piece of leverage is reduced. And, um, you know, I think that D Smith is interesting because he didn't play and he had no sports law background when he got the job in 2009 and he was, 
a, a, an outsider and he was a black man entering these negotiating rooms with mostly older white billionaires. And I think that he's always felt um, like he's always crashing a party. Like he wasn't always quite accepted by the union and he definitely wasn't accepted by those um by you know NFL owners NFL team owners at the negotiating table and you know would a former player or you know lawyer solve that maybe but i don't know if they would be able to negotiate wholesale better deals at the at the negotiating table without the willingness of the union to walk away and to go without football Let's switch back a couple years ago. Uh, you've written many pieces on the Patriots' dysfunctions there at One Patriot's Place. What did you think of the Dynasty book that just came out? It seems like it was just uh, for a lot of people at face value that it was just Robert Kraft having his say, so much so that they mailed that Dynasty book to season ticket holders. It's just uh, written as a Valentine book to Robert Kraft. Did you read it, and what did you think about it? Well, I read it. I'm working on my own Patriots book. Um, yeah, that, that's why I brought it up. Yeah, you know, which will be out in October. And you know, the the, the author Jeff Benedict is a very well respected journalist. And you know, all of the, all you know, it, it, yes, a lot of it was told from Robert Kraft's perspective. But you know, they've all kind of had their say over the years. You know, there was the Belichick book with David Halberstam that came out in 2006, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was book. That book was told heavily from Bill Belichick's perspective. Tom Brady's had his his film, you know, he had Tom versus Time. You know, he's had moments where he gets to kind of weigh in and explain at least as much as he's willing to, you know, how he sees that, you know, things have gone. And, you know, Robert Kraft has earned that. And, you know, I thought that it was a good read. And I think there's more to say about the Patriots in the past 20 years. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing a book on them. You know, Robert Kraft's earned the right to be able to weigh in on some of these things. And, you know, it was interesting. I mean, in the in January of 2018, you know, I, I wrote a story about issues that they were having in the building at the time around TV 12 and around Jimmy Garoppolo and around, you know, Alex Guerrero and who's going to be the last man standing there. And, you know, there have been other reports on it during the year. The Boston Globe had done some, Tom Curran had done some. And, um, you know, the Patriots released a statement and, you know, I thought that it was interesting because they released a statement kind of decrying a lot of the reports, not just mine, but others about problems in the building. And then, you know, the dynasty revealed that not only were those going on, not only were they worse than a lot of people knew, but that Kraft was actively trying to solve it and later wanted credit for solving it. Wow. Have you had any retribution? Did you ever get shut off after Bill and Bears or any of these articles that you've put out? Because I think that the biggest one that stands out in many people's minds is Deflategate. Um, how did you de- how did you deal with the backlash? I, you know, it just in general from the Patriots or um, from the fans or anyone? Well, it's, you know, I've covered the Patriots for 20 years. One of my very first stories was in um, no, early November of 2001. I was a year out of college. Tom Brady was a year out of college. I did a story on him. And, you know, when I was hanging out with him during that time, I mean, we didn't even know if he was going to finish the season as a starter, much less go on to the career that he's had. And, you know, I've done stories over the years 
that Bill Belichick has cooperated in. Um, you know, he likes to talk on the phone late at night. It's when, you know, he's, he's done with his work day and he can be relaxed and expansive and, and in no rush, even as, you know, midnight comes and goes. And I've done other stories where they don't participate. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I don't work as hard to get things right or whatever. It's just kind of how things go. I mean, my job is to share the best that I can and honest and good faith account of what's going on on various teams or in the league office. And, you know, they're very driven by winning football games. And sometimes those things are at odds. I've never felt any retribution in any way. Um, you know, you get fans that are upset with you every now and then, but then sometimes they come around later. That's okay. And, um, you know, the dealings with the Patriots are, have always been professional. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Has the real history of what went down been written? Well, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully in October. Well, that is quite a tease. Can you embellish a little more about um, this book that you're writing? And um, I believe, are, are, are you being granted full access to the facility or are Belichick and Brady kind of, uh, have they given the green light for you to write this book? Well, you know, you don't need a green light from them to write a book. And, you know, nobody's in the in the facility right now because of pandemic issues. But, but you know, look, I, like I said, you know, there's, I've, I've written about the Patriots going back to 2001 um, throughout their entire ride. And, um, you know, I've I've, you know, been to Tom Brady's postgame Super Bowl party. I've been to his house. I've talked to Belichick about real issues about his coaching tree. And, you know, I think that, like, when you look at the arc of their dynasty and what it is and, you know, the fact that it's still kind of being written with Tom in Tampa, I just think that I wanted to write it the best book I could about what made these men so great at trying to control a game that nobody can control and what were the costs of that greatness in between, whether it was, um, you know, falling out in relationships or, you know, being so pathologically driven that, um, you know, Brady's spoken about it, that, you know, his family felt like there was no off season. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that there's a good story to be told there. And, you know, I'll just do the very best I can to tell it. In your opinion, what was the real plan of succession? You know, I mean, we see how bad it looks right now, what went down in March. But, you know, a lot of uh, back then when it happened, you could understand not giving Tom two years, but now, I mean, it looks completely foolish. Was there a real plan of succession? Well, you know, I think that when they drafted Garoppolo, they clearly drafted him to succeed Tom. And, you know, Brady didn't play well. And or, I'm sorry, I take that back. Brady played unbelievably well, and it made it hard to put Jimmy on the field. And as invested as Belichick was with Garoppolo, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, Kraft's loyalty was to Brady and to keeping the band together. And Tom was playing so well at such a high level, he wasn't going to give up that spot. And mm-hmm. when you look at what happened, you know, I think that Brady wanted some clarity from the Patriots. And he wanted, he had made very clear that he wanted to play till age 45. And I think that he wanted a contract that reflected a commitment to that. Mm-hmm. As long as I'm playing well, why won't you, you know, give me that that show of faith. I mean, look at everything that we did accomplished. And the Patriots, I think, saw him as a year-to-year quarterback. You know, as, as much as Robert Kraft wanted to keep things together, he, you know, I think that, like, this was Belichick's call. And, you know, so last March, 
they ended up parting ways. But I think that like in reality, Brady knew in August of 2019 that that was going to be his last year in New England. March was more of a formality than anything else. Who's more to blame for this divorce? This so public divorce that has just smeared tears all over every fan and personality in the great region of New England here. I mean, is it Kraft? Is it Belichick? Or is it Tom? Well, I think that it was probably, I mean, you know, I don't like to. Don't say all three. You can't say all three. You got to pick one. Yeah. I mean, it's a difficult, it's a difficult dynamic because you have Belichick whose genius is knowing when to move on from a player which is usually before he needs to. That's what he's so good at. Mm-hmm. And then you have Brady, who's trying to push the boundaries of what any professional football player has ever done and has successfully done so. And at the end of the day, I mean, I think that like if Belichick had wanted to offer Tom a two-year contract similar to the one that he got from Tampa, maybe Brady would have taken it or maybe Brady would have decided that even with that offer on the table, he was ready to do something else. I think that like – you know, Tom wanted to do kind of similar to what Peyton Manning did in Denver, which is, you know, you go to a new team and you're able to kind of like share what you've learned over the years and help build that team to, and help them reach levels that maybe they weren't sure they could reach. And so clearly it's it's Belichick making the decision about contracts and, you know, what the terms of them would be. But that said, I you know, I think the relationship had just kind of run its course. So you're kind of pointing the finger to Tom as it being his decision. I I agree with that. And I think that we all look back and I think a lot of people here, especially given how bad the 2020 season was, they want to point fingers at management because um, their precious dynasty is, is over and they can't really see the light and everyone's just confused and shaking their head. And it's just, there's so much uncertainty in the, in this region. Um, But it all goes back to, you know, the mindset of Bill Belichick and what he's going to do, whether or not he's going to bring in help or not. I I have a question. Um, Who, in in your estimation, who has the more complex personality? Is it Bill or is it Tom? Hmm. I mean, they both are, Um, you know, just in very different ways. I mean, I think that Bill, you know, you have Bill kind of only child and, you know, he's someone who's you know, used to getting his way and he's used to being in charge and he's been in charge for a long time. And they both, and then you have Tom, youngest of, you know, four kids kind of fighting for attention, Um, you know, and and as alpha as he can be, he is, you know, a soldier, you know, he, he, he will push back on things, but at the end of the day, he, he does what's asked of him. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they both share an incredible love of proving people wrong and telling they do it differently. Like Belichick does it with a scowl and Brady kind of does it more with a smile. But they love telling people who thought they couldn't do something to F off. <laughs> and, you know, that's it. and again, that's some of the stuff that the themes that I get into in the book is just, you know, what kind of drives this greatness? And, you know, what was it about these two people that came together and, and who were such different people and were able to come together and produce what they did? What was the most compelling story of the many stories that you've done over the years about the Patriots? Like what what compelled you with that passion and excitement with the butterflies in your stomach to take an even deeper dive? Because, I mean, that's your middle name. Yeah, right. It's, you know, I think that it's like, it's just the sustained greatness. I mean, I think that that's it. You know, they, 
both of these guys have had many chances to take an off ramp over the years, right? I mean, they've had many chances to, you know, walk away from this game that tends to kind of rip things away from you and strip things away from you um, with their dignity and their fortune and their legacy intact. And they've just blown by them. Yeah. The most predictable thing ever was Brady saying the week before the Super Bowl that, you know, he could see himself playing past age 45. I mean, of course. I'd love to see Giselle's look, the look on her face when he said that, but of course he was thinking that. Yeah. Because as you get older, the things that, the, the, the traits that you have don't wane. And in fact, they can just kind of intensify. And so, of course, Brady is thinking past age 45. And then if you go back to, you know, there was this great moment in, in the Football Life documentary that Belichick did, you know, what is Two bills, it? excellent. Fantastic. It wasn't, it wasn't the two bills. It was the it was the Football Life that I think he did like 10 years ago. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. It was two parts. But at the okay. end of it, they had just lost to the Ravens in the playoffs. Yeah. And the camera was with Bill driving to work the next day and it's cold and it's dark and the season's over and it just feels miserable in that car. And, you know, he's saying, you know, I'm not going to be Marv Levy coaching into my seventies. You don't have to worry about that at all, but look at Bill. Bill's going to be 69 years old in April. In April 16th. That's my birthday. It is. Well, there you go. But I mean, he's my mother too. Oh, so, funny. Well, he has no, you know, this guy has no desire to walk away anytime soon. I know. It's just these guys, they, you know, they have to do this. And, um, you know, what that does to you and what it takes to have that kind of motor and sustain it, I just find fascinating. I, I can't wait to read this book. And I, I wish that you would give me a forward. I kind of have promised, you've promised me low key that you would that you would put me first and foremost. I mean, hey, who knows what happens in a couple of months? I, I might I might be cool enough to, you know, write a review if I get a big sassy job. Who knows? We'll, t- um, we'll definitely talk in the fall. No problem. Yeah, for sure. I have one final question mm-hmm. to leave you with. And it it's, I think uh, talking to Greg Cosell, who is also very close with Bill and um, just given the history that he has with the game and had how honorable he is with Bill and how much he admired his uncle Howard. Um, he kind of brought up an interesting point is that, uh, you know, um, what makes Bill the, a great coach? And my question is, why does it happen so often that people on social media or, the guy in the CBS, you know, Chiron truck wants to make a full screen about Bill's coaching tree and why there is such a lack of success there. Can you put your finger on why Bill's coaching tree has failed time and time again? No, because I've written at length about this. Um, and this is a lot, you, you know, in the, in, the, in the book, I'll have a lot on this too. Um, you know, each situation is different, but I do think that there is, and, you know, I think that some of these guys have done well, like, you know, I think that Brian Flores in Miami, you know, Vrabel's not from exactly the Belichick tree, but he's definitely been influenced by Bill, yeah. you know, Tom Dimitrov in Atlanta did a fantastic job there for a while. All of these situations are different, but I think there was a really interesting moment there in 2007, 2008, 2009, that era where, and football in general, even going to college, was populated with people who worked under Bill. 
And you had so many of them who had been raised under Bill and it was kind of all they knew was his system and how he did things. And when he, and when they left to go do their own programs, they, they didn't quite know how to do it. They didn't know how to coach within their own personality. Eric Mangini is a different person than Bill Belichick. Charlie Weiss is a very different person than Bill Belichick. Josh McDaniels is a different person than Bill Belichick. And yet, you know, when they became, you know, Scott Pioli is a very different person than Bill Belichick. And yet when they were running their own, their own clubs, those were the tracks they kind of ended up drifting into. Mm-hmm. So they ended up sounding like him. And they were, you know, could you run a Bill Belichick program without being Bill Belichick? And those were the the issues they were kind of fighting against. And I found that entire era very fascinating because some coaching trees, like Bill Walsh's coaching tree, those guys never have a yeah. problem being their own per- people. Yeah. Mike Holmgren never had an issue being his own person, even though he was raised under under Bill Walsh. And it was just different when it came to Bill Belichick's tree for some reason. And, and his shadow and his influence hovered so, was so great over, you know, these, these young men when they took over teams that they were really almost kind of paralyzed between trying to do what they thought was best, which was what they had learned and trying to do it their own way. And there was just a big disconnect between how that stuff sounded in theory and the actuality of it happening. I think that that you kind of nailed each perspective of things. And I've heard different varying stories that Bill wasn't always so open to teaching, but I feel like I don't, I just don't, I find that to not to be true. I I feel like anyone who is a a mentor or a coach is always open to teaching, but yeah, it's, it's almost like you're, you're so used to operating in one sense, in one way you do it for 20 years and then you go to a new team and there's chaos all around. You're like, I can't build a foundation here. Yeah, Eric Mangini once told me, he was like, you know, you're coming from this program that's been enormously successful and there's nothing wrong with it. And you're coming to a new team and you haven't won anything. Yeah. And you're supposed to do something different and deviate from it. It just seems impractical. Yeah. And that was the, you know, those guys were kind of at war with themselves in a very deeply psychological way. Fantastic. Seth, this has been so great. Can you plug your book? It's called Amazon. Yeah, you can get it. You can pre-order on on Amazon. It's called It's Better to Be Feared. It'll be out in October. And um, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you again back, uh, you know, in a couple months. I, I, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it, too. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you. After this interview with Seth and the cameras were off, I kind of casually asked him a question. I said, uh, what more is there for Demora Smith to do? If this was going to be the beginning of the end for Demora Smith, as often when they do these extensive articles, something always comes out of it. So is this going to be the end of Demora Smith's head of the NFLPA? And he said, honestly, I really don't think there's anything more that D can do. He already sued the league. He sued Roger Goodell. And if it was in his honest opinion, it will be an amicable split and it will just fade out into the darkness. Well, well, let's switch over to something a little sweeter, sour and sweet. We went sour a little bit, not saying anything about Seth. (laughs) He's fantastic. But this interview is really sweet. Torrey Smith, two-time Super Bowl champion, the pride of College Park, Maryland, and the Maryland Terrapins. Who asked for college football talk in the middle of the NFL offseason? I did, unknowingly. So you're going to get some. It's a solid, solid talk. I mean, he had me laughing so hard at some points when we were throwing it back to college. But Tori's a character. 
He's on Get Up this week. He's a budding broadcasting star. We talk about his loyalty to Mike Loxley and how the talent at Maryland is rising rapidly, how he almost became the wide receivers coach out there. Yeah, he puts on his best recruitment face. It's pretty funny. And then we hit the national stories. He has some pretty strong opinions about Carson Wentz being traded, the Eagles' dysfunction there. Deshaun Watson, he has a nice piece of advice for him. It was super fun. I had a smile on my face the entire time. So let's jump in. Just the camera, man. Are you in, now that you're retired, are you in like bulking season or are you trying to slim down? Uh, I'm just trying to stay the same, Not, but not like, I mean, I have to, if I just lift and don't run, I'll, I'll gain weight. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how to be like 205, but I've really been more t- 210 than anything else. So. Do, you, do you continue doing sprints or any kind of like workouts that you did? I am working out. I'm doing work. I, I haven't yeah. been, because my knee was my issue. That's why I retired. So I haven't really been like on the field. You know what I mean? Like, well, it's different for other guys because I know like linebackers and stuff, they're just, they're trying to keep their weight off. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah, trying to get fat. I'm fine. I mean, I've seen some receivers that blew up, but that's my number one motivation, uh, not to get fat and in my health, just overall. <laughs> well, and also being a family man. I, you know, it's funny because we connected when I was covering the 49ers in the locker room, and I just remember this conversation of it was me, you, and Eric Decker. And we were all in a circle, and you're like, I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, the two of us are the only people – in an NFL locker room where our kids are more famous than we are. <laughs> how is, how is TJ doing? I mean, he, you know, like, his, his Instagram fame was, it was pretty crazy for a while. Yeah. He's doing well. It's crazy. Just getting big, full blown conversations. Like it's crazy. Let's talk about Maryland. Tori Smith, um, the pride of university of Maryland and the team this year Obviously, like I just keep, I've been hearing about this for years. I've been hearing, oh, the program is up and coming. You know, we're really, this is going to be the year that we're going to break out. Well, we got Tua Tungavailoa's brother. Um, You got Josh Jacobs' brother, could possibly be the next starting running back next year. And you have Dino Tomlin, who's Mike Tomlin's kid. So there's got to be some rhyme to the reason that Maryland is pulling in some serious recruits. Cause I, when you talk about those guys, they're not just going to send their kids to any old school. Right. And you said that first, the number one link between all of them is Mike Loxley. So yeah, he deserves a lot of credit for all those guys coming in. Um, when you trust like your big brother or your father, trust someone, you tend to have the edge for them coming to your school. And that says a lot about coach Loxley and, his relationship with them and their trust that he will be able to take care of them. Cause when you're, when you send your child to college, you're signing them up. That's their parent. Now, you know, yeah. you're trusting them to make sure that in four years, they're a better man or woman, uh, yeah. depending on which sport they're playing and that they're in a better position. So um, Maryland is that place, you know, you see the opportunity there. It's a new conference. Um, I, I'm an ACC baby, but now coming over, I'm, I'm going, the big 10 is going on me and the team has an opportunity, but Maryland, unlike other schools, it's going to take time. So I know Terps fans want things to happen right away. But you have to think, for a coach to really switch a culture, and Maryland isn't like going to Alabama and expecting to win right away. Yeah. right? You, it's a place that you have to turn into a place that people want to be. So you have to win local. You have to get those Maryland guys in, the talented ones to stay in state. You have to get the boys from Virginia to come up like myself to stay, to see Maryland as a destination, a place that can compete because you have the facilities catching up 
and you had the opportunity to play in those big stadiums, but you are close to home. So watching Loxley turn it around is going to be a process because he needs his class. These guys, it can't be like, oh, you had a class two good years in a row. Well, those dudes are only sophomores now. Yeah. Like, you need to have that full stretch. You know, let his yeah. guys get to their senior, junior year, and then we'll see what happens. You're talking about those sophomores. Next year, like, Maryland could have a top five wide receiver room. You got uh, Dante Demas, Rakeem Jarrett, who was their number two, um, and Jayshon Jones. What do you think of these young and up-and-coming wide receivers? Oh, they're, they're on deck. You know, you take about, <laughs> about Maryland uh, and the receivers that we've had over the uh, recent history, you know, some talented guys, guys who've had the opportunity to play in the pros. And I see those guys, they have that potential. You know, it's on them to work and earn it. But they're going to have that opportunity there. Uh, Maryland's turned into a place where people are seeing opportunity as a receiver, especially, you know, two of the top 10 guys, in my opinion. And I'm not trying to be biased. Diggs already proved that. But uh, being leading the league this year, you know, in yards. But on the other side of that, DJ Moore um, is growing up and doing an excellent job as well. So those younger guys, you know, I believe they're going to turn it on. They're going to be a, a big difference maker in the in the team moving forward. There was a question of uh, the wide receiver coaching position. Um, there was like a lot of, uh, you're, yeah, see, you're smiling. I know it. There were rumors that Keenan McCardell was going to come back, and your name got brought up. Yeah. All right. Okay. Spill it. What, what was going on there? Did you consider coming back? What was what was the talk uh, behind the scenes? You know, I would have I would have done it if I didn't have so much going on in the community. Like literally, if we weren't taking over this rec center in West Baltimore, I probably would have did it. Oh. And you know, just because you know, I have a lot of love and respect for Coach Loxley, and I have a lot of love and respect for for Maryland. I mean, but beyond that, I just trust what he's building. But with me just retiring and having so much going on in the community. You know, I need to take care of, you know, more of my purpose first and helping the folks in Baltimore. And then uh, we'll see what happens down the line. How close were you to doing it? Was it like this close or were, was it kind of just uh, something you considered? And then I mean, I just I just knew because of the work and spearheading what's going on in West Baltimore, like it's something that I couldn't do. Right. Like the one thing that happens so much in certain communities, especially with athletes, is that you're all in on something and then you're gone. Like when the situation yeah. changes. So being that we're taking this on, um, it, it's taking up the majority of my time, <laughs> yeah. to be completely honest with my wife. And, you know, it, it's it's a huge responsibility that I, I'm ready for that to be settled first. And then we'll see what happens. But, um, you know, I'll be heavily involved with Maryland anyway because I'm back. I'm local. Um, yeah. And, you know, Coach Loxley is only a, a phone call and a hop, skip, and a jump away. So uh, that's yeah. my guy. Oh, awesome. Well, I'm I'm involved too. The Terrapin Club. I'm part of the next gen committee. I gotta I gotta give a shout out. We uh we're actually it's a it's a alumni association that gives back to in hopes of aiding those student athletes to uh, get funding for in college. I mean, it's you know, kind of it's very in the the beginner neutral stages, but I, I love to hear that you're still heavily involved and heavily in love with, you know, University of College Park. I'm, I'm exactly the same way. Right. It's, it's, it makes me wonder, you're talking about recruits and all things that Coach Loxley aside, you just, you already stated it. He changed the culture. He changed just um, the name of the game. And I feel like uh, man, a couple of years ago when I was, um, when I was in school, I think I'm a couple, I'm graduating in 09. So I think I'm a year older than you. Mm -hmm. So, um, there was a huge issue for years about the University of Maryland keeping kids 
in the DMV. Like, uh, you know, the, the DMV has the, or Prince George's County, I think is one of the top five or top 10 counties in the United States in terms of talent. Kevin Durant's from the DMV. Uh, Vernon Davis was, I think, probably the only, um, you know, four-star, five-star recruit that actually stayed in state. And that had a lot to do with the athletic director and the what kind of pull that she could pull with, with the admissions. Because Maryland is an academically rigorous school, you know, despite what people think. What changed? How, how, are, how was Maryland able to... Um, you know, get get the local kids to come and stay in state and stay in school. Oh, what I've noticed is Loxley yeah. <laughs> and James Franklin were the guys that were around when that was happening, Yeah, right? Uh, Coach Loxley from D.C., Vernon Davis, D.C. Yeah. Vontae Davis goes to Illinois. Yeah. Who was in Illinois at the time? Yeah. Coach Loxley. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, there's no... Secret to it, Coach Loxley is the key to Maryland trying to keep guys at home. And that's a big difference. You know, it's a tough school to get into, but guys have to see that value. And I'm always on the fence. Obviously, I sell people on having an opportunity to build at home. But some guys want to experience new environments as well. And so you have to be able to find that balance. But there are so many guys that have the opportunity to do something special. Like all of your goals, like, if you say, all right, I want to win a national championship, Maryland's been close. They won it way, way back. I'm talking about recent years. But yeah. in recent years, you know, they had the opportunity. They were one game away from being in that position, right? And then mm-hmm. now you talk about being the opportunity to change the culture. And some of these guys, you're four or five-star prospect, you're thinking NFL the majority of the time. So yeah. those guys, like, well, that can definitely happen at Maryland. You can yeah. be the man. You can be home. You can build something special. And what I've been able to experience is the way it's benefited me away from the game, you know, being local. I now I got lucky. Everyone isn't gonna get drafted up the street, you yeah. know, <laughs> up the highway. But yeah. the reality of it is that's been a game changer for life after football. And guys need to understand that if you play for the University of Maryland, whether you go pro or not, that's always gonna be your home. You know, you're in the DC market. Uh, there are gonna be so many different opportunities for you to connect and figure out ways to um, better yourself when the game is done, because that's gonna happen whether you yeah. play. One day or one year is going to happen. Yeah. I feel like in college football, and I remember I had Mike Golick Jr. on the show at the beginning of the college football season. So many teams, especially in the Big Ten, it, one of the most, obviously, outside of the SEC, um, just the most competitive conferences in in the country. And these teams that are competing against the Michigans, the Ohio States, it's like everyone recruits – to take down Ohio State. You know, it's it's Ohio State and Clemson and Alabama. Like, when is that in in, in college football culture going to change? Or are I we think, still doing that? You know, it's, it's, I, it's like we're competing against each other and then we hit the juggernaut. I think it's always been that way. And I think it's going to continue to be that way. It's going to be those top schools that are hot for a while. Now, Alabama's a lot longer than a while. But yes. you have those schools that people want to go to. Michigan still wants to be that so bad. Yeah. Even though they're not, they want to be that so bad, but they had that tradition that they built. So guys want to go there because they've seen it happen. And so it's on the other people. Now the reality of it is that doesn't guarantee you a national championship, right? That you can yeah. compete. Your goal is to be one of those top teams, but guys are always going to see the teams that are winning. Like it's hard for any recruit. I don't care where you're from. I mean, my son knows about Alabama, right? Yeah. And he's, you know, six years old. 
yeah. because of the way they're winning, the way they're dominating. These big schools are going to always have that name recognition, but the reality of it is these other teams can compete with them as well. And it's on the players to decide, you know, do I want to go to this place and potentially sit? You know, I remember watching Marlon Humphrey tweet, uh, you know, come to Alabama, you know, because you, you're going to get to the league. Da, da, da. And I was like, well, you didn't mention that you might have to wait till your last year to possibly play, you know, and it's not, and it has nothing to do with, I think it's going to be a high level at all times. You're going to be a better football player, obviously competing against better players each and every day, yeah. but you can go to the league from the university of Maryland, just like you can for the university of Alabama, because your talent is going to be what gets you there. And yeah. so it's, a, that's what's tough for people to see like, man, this guy go to the league. They have 10 draft picks. Well, they're telling you, Hey, you know, Courtney, you're going to be our guy. You're going to work hard. You're going to have this opportunity. And guess what? Next year, they're going to find another five-star prospect. And they're yeah. going to tell him the exact same thing they told you or your mom. And yeah. you're going to have to prove it. And that's not to run away from competition yeah. or to say places are weaker. But the reality of it is, you know, it's going to be, you had the opportunity to be the man earlier elsewhere. Yeah. I can remember when I I was a local sports anchor in Miami and signing day was like the biggest deal. And I got really eye-opening. I mean, you know, those Miami-Dade and Broward counties, it was like oh, a national hall. It was a national holiday. I, I saw kids with, we had the whole setup of local news cameras. He's like, oh yeah, I'm going to pick between this and this. This dude picks up like a hat out of a, a bag. And then he's like, oh, surprise, I'm going here. <laughs> and one of the kids, oh man, I can't remember where he was, but it was like a, this four-star defense lineman. And he went to LSU. He's like, yeah, you know, because uh, Coach O gave me his word. And, like, I remember tweeting at Bomani Jones. is like, oh, yeah, that means money. Like, <laughs> he's like oh, yeah, he gave, he gave you his word. Like, he and my mama, my, my word. I, does that still happen nowadays? Like, are we kind of just, like, naive to it? In terms of trust, are you talking real money? I mean, like, no, like, real money. Like, I really, I mean, like. I was broke. I tell people all the time, man, Maryland. If they would have said how to catch a broke athlete, they would have set up this package. Like, man, you get because when I was in school, athletes at the way Maryland did it, because every school is different. At Maryland, you couldn't get cash when I was there. Yeah. So you had to you had your diner card, right? You got your diner card, your little $25 of commons bucks that you get. Oh man. So therefore, anything outside of when the school is closed. If your family didn't send you money or you didn't qualify for a Pell Grant or whatever it may be, then you weren't going to have it. And so there you would see guys taking box lunches home, trying to put it in the refrigerator because everyone's financial situation was different. Now, the way Maryland does it, you know, guys can pay their rent to have extra cash to be able to do those things because people don't take into account that as a student athlete, it is like a full time job time wise. So it's hard to work. Right. I worked my going into my last year's summer, but it's hard to do. And you need money for other things. Like this, the diner isn't open all the time. I'm, I'm sorry. And everyone needs to experience something outside of diner food. Uh, Even though that Buffalo chicken wrap is fire, you have to be able to experience something else, you know? I, uh, the, some of the swirly ice creams that you get for right. when you walk out, you know, sometimes, sometimes you want to go down to, uh, down, well, Ratsy's not even open anymore. College yeah. Park, this, Route 1 is so whack now. It's just, they just, just destroyed everything. It makes me so sad. What yeah. was your bar of choice? I was a Cornerstone girl. Cornerstone like, girl. I more yeah. so went to Bentley's. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I was, a, like, so I lived in Commons 3, so I could look. Okay. And, 
And where my going was, I could stick my head out the window and see if yep. I wanted to go yeah, down. I there, know so. exactly. I know exactly where you lived. Like you lived <laughs> in the same building that Jordan Steffi used to live. Yeah, Jordan was my roommate. By- <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah, Jordan. Oh, I got a I got a funny Jordan Steffi story. So Jordan uh was one of my best friends because um I dated I dated a guy that was who was trying to be a sports agent and all that stuff. So I got sucked in my freshman year, first semester. He was like, don't worry about pledging sororities. Like, you're just gonna focus on your career now. So I just was hanging around with Jordan Steffi and a bunch of football players, Nolan Carroll. Uh, Darius Hayward Bay. And so Jordan and I got super close. So I remember this one day, like I was a junior and he came over. He's like, Hey, can you, can you help me with something? And then he comes over and he was trying to hustle me to sell his sneakers. He's like, Yo, if you buy these sneakers and then you can flip it for this. I was like, dude, like I, I'm, I'm not cut out for this. Like let me- I'll tell you, he is the ultimate hustle. Like Jordan Steffi. Oh God. One of the perfect examples of how, <laughs> to be an athlete, take advantage of your situation, and yeah. to like be better. Because him, I was in a room or a suite with Richard Taylor, who was a cornerback. Yeah. Uh, he had, was hurt, so I believe he had a medical year. So he was a graduate when I was in their room. So they were in literally, because of their, their injuries, him, Richard Taylor, Mac Frost, and Jordan Steffi, they all had knee injuries that gave them extra year. Yeah. So therefore, when I was rooming with them, they were finishing up their master's. Yeah. So you have me, young freshman me, on the back end of my, on the second semester of my freshman year with these guys. And I'm like, wait, like y'all are working on your masters. Y'all are doing this. So like it opened my eyes to the possibilities like that existed. And they were planning for things beyond football. So that really kind of helped me as well. And Steffi seeing what he was doing, he already had a foundation in college, already helping people was already doing things and now he's out he has business stuff he has this foundation he's all over the place but just being able to watch those guys was huge for me that's fantastic i love that i love a good jordan steffi story (laughs) he literally got run over by a car (laughs) like that's why he messed up his knee like (laughs) he got hit like i do i just remember my friends my friend i think he came to one of the graduation events of one of my best friends in college and his dad's like you know jordan steffi a plus man damn you were a terrible quarterback (laughs) you were the worst quarterback ever but you are an a plus human for anyone that doesn't know oh god i love it i love it i kind of forgot that you said that you lived with jordan steffi all right we're moving on to some nfl stuff (laughs) no one knows no one no one knows what the hell we're talking about um but anyways uh carson wentz you are very vocal very very vocal on the carson wentz trade to the indianapolis colts you love it and for me it just like says like the the eagles i I feel like trading carson wentz and getting them off like he did he did the eagles a favor do you agree no, I think it was had to be mutual because of the way it was. I mean, yeah. I don't think you could say you're doing the Eagles a favor because you're you're essentially trading a guy who just a few years ago was an MVP candidate, who just yeah. last year or the season before last put the team on his back and willed the team to the playoffs. So we have a short-term memory, especially when it comes to football. He has the ability. So it's like, all right, who do you turn to? Whenever you turn to someone who's younger – you always are questioning what's going to happen. What's their potential? What's their ceiling? And so you have a guy who you know his ceiling was MVP level. 
mm-hmm. when things were in his favor, when he had protection, when it's when the offense was able to spread out, when they had a consistent running game, and none of that's been true for the last two seasons. But I wasn't surprised at all when they traded him. I thought it made a lot of sense for the team and the organization moving forward, even though it's a horrible hit to the salary cap, which is going to set this team back this year. Mm-hmm. But when you bench a guy and the guy's upset and you lose that trust and he may or may not want to be there, you have bigger issues. You know, you you have to move on. You have to make it right for the team to move forward. And Jalen Hurts is a talented quarterback. So, yeah. I mean, it's a huge opportunity there for him. There's so many ingredients that went into the um, volcanic explosion of the Eagles. And it starts at the, at the top, you know, it's like Howie Roseman can't draft and uh, you know, and Doug Peterson can't coach. And I, I can't tell you how many Eagles fans have asked me, you know, wh- what's, what's the issue? What's the solution to this? And it seemed as though Jalen hurts came in and suddenly his weapons were wide open. The offense had second breath. I mean, so, my question, because I know that I'm not saying anything. I know that you're a big Carson Wentz supporter. I know that you know that's your guy. Who is to blame? Who was to blame for the offense? Was I mean, was it was it just the marriage and you know that that needed a divorce because there was no ability to have counseling? What, what was the problem with the Eagles? I think it's everything. I mean, when you watch watch the game, look at the offense. I mean, the first thing they did when Jalen comes in, which is popular, when you have younger quarterbacks is he got him on the move. Yeah. Right? Carson was a sitting duck back there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they weren't rolling out like that. You know, you they weren't doing things to get off the script the same way. So I think that was a piece. You know, I think consistently with the offense, they weren't respecting what they could do down the field. So that makes it harder, tighter windows. However, you have a guy like Jalen who can run, run. Carson can run. Carson's athletic. Yeah. But Jalen can run, run. <laughs> like, as a speed back there, it's different. Yeah. So if you watch the full games, Jalen's able to – guys may be covered. Yeah. You know, even though he's young, he, he may have missed something, but he's able to make up for it with his feet. I remember watching the last game he had played in um, when they ended up switching and putting Nate in for a little while, and they suffered in for a little while. They were out of that game. They couldn't throw the ball. They couldn't do anything right. But he made plays with his feet that – kept them in the game. And so that was the biggest difference to me. I don't think the offense necessarily is better. I saw Spark that first game, and he really threw it. And that's crazy saying that because he threw for 300-something yards, you know, against Arizona. He had a great game. But overall, the offense, I didn't see anything that was like – it was a burst of energy, but when you look at the sample size over the four weeks, it was like, well, it was the same old thing. And switch gears to the other team. You know, it, it took about an hour to change the narrative on Carson Wentz. All of a sudden, it was his fault in Philly. And now, uh, according to Dan Orlovsky of ESPN, the Colts are it. Super Bowl favorites. I oh, love, you it. love it. Why, yeah. do you, why do you love it? Think about it. When we won the Super Bowl in 2000, well, the 2018 Super Bowl, again, we had arguably the best off, not arguably, we had the best offensive line in the league. Yeah. With Lane Johnson. Ooh. He's a he's a character. Jason Kelsey, Brandon Brooks, and Jason Peters before he got hurt. Yep. The running game, LeGarrette Gunt, LeGarrette Blunt, and Jay Ajayi, two great running backs. Yep. Our passing game was balanced. Zach Ertz, we didn't have we didn't have a receiver have a thousand yards, but we had yeah. a bunch of guys in the high hundreds. We were balanced across the board, meaning that we can attack any level of the field. 
Mm-hmm. Our defense was great on the other side. Indianapolis has all of those things, and they even had the guy who was the offensive coordinator back then in Frank Wright, who was oh, now yeah. the coach. You guys. Yeah. coach. So yeah. when you have that relationship, when you have the team that has the ability to potentially the balance, a team that's going to trust the run, a team that's going to stick with the run and has the ability to do it, that makes it easier for the quarterback. They respect your play action. You're able to marry your offense. And it's a perfect recipe for any quarterback, really, to bounce back. But especially for Carson, knowing that he has a coach that knows him better than anyone else outside of Philly. And that's yeah. the perfect situation for him. I know that you you said uh, he's gonna ball out. You're real good with the with the memes, and I feel like you have you have this enough to go head to head with all these Twitter trolls. Like I don't. Speaking of quarterbacks, it's just gonna be so fascinating what happens in the next couple of weeks. Sean Watson, mm. he's clearly very vocal about wanting out. You have a guy that's healthy, a guy that's a top five quarterback in the league right now, but it's almost like you had like damaged goods because of how this season went and perception from the outside, right? You have a guy who's hot right now in the shot. Watson, so uh, he's for sure a hot commodity, um, and um, there's going to be plenty of people that want him. I tell people all the time, you can have those draft picks. Yeah. It's team Jacksonville has spent our lifetime trying trying to find a franchise quarterback. Yep. So those draft picks mean nothing. If you have the short thing, a guy who I don't even believe the shot's 26, 27, maybe. maybe. He's think he's younger than that. No, he's young. Yeah. So yeah, in 2017, because I was there in Philly. So uh he's 25, yes. 26 years old. Yeah. And this guy, quarterbacks now are playing till they're 35, 40 years yes. old. Yeah. You trade those few first round picks for a guy like that, and he can help change an entire franchise. <laughs> If Houston refuses to trade him, what advice would you have for Deshaun going forward? Because it seems like, listen, coming from the cloth of the New England Patriots, I know Nick Casario. I know that organization, uh, the Patriots organization, more than anyone, and obviously not more than anyone. <laughs> I, I I have a great grasp on on how these teams tend to think and negotiate and. To me, I, I just don't think it's going to be that easy to get him out of there. And especially with Nick Casario, the first mistake that he said was, you know, having the first mistake that Cal McNair made was telling Deshaun Watson that he was going to have a say in the general manager and that decision and not following through. So it's not necessarily on Nick. It's more on the dysfunction of the entire Houston Texans franchise. Uh, what advice will you would you give to Sean if if that's that trade doesn't necessarily go through? Like, is uh, it go to Cabo. What? Go to Cabo like Zeke and uh, chill on out. Okay. I mean, he's gonna get traded. You can't have a guy on your team that everyone knows they don't want to be there. Yeah. Regardless of how talented they are. People like to throw out the word locker room cancer and all of this stuff. Obviously, Deshaun's way more professional than a lot of guys who've done that. Great kid. But why would you want a guy in a locker room who simply doesn't be want to be there? You can't build forward with that. Yeah. And so if he really wants out, which he does, and if he maintains that he, he's done playing there, which he may do, they're going to have to move on. What's your J.J. Watt prediction? 
Where do you think he's going to go? I actually don't think that now that we've kind of broken down and analyzed nationally as a sports media group, <laughs> talking about the uh, the Cleveland Browns, I just don't think – I don't think that that's too far off. I don't think he's going to the Steelers. There's no way. Uh, I, think he's, I think he's going to Green Bay or the Steelers. I mean, you the Steelers so? – yes, if, if Big Ben plays the way he's capable of playing – I don't think he's going to be there. I they're a Super Bowl contender. Now – what if they said, hey, we're going to go get Deshaun? You just never know. I doubt it. Okay. I doubt it. I doubt it. But yeah. the same. There's guys out there. There's Derek Carr. Right? Yeah. There are guys that have the ability to play that can keep them going at a high level. But the reality of it is, it goes bigger than that to me. He can go home to Wisconsin, where he's from. That's his home state. Yeah. And yeah. play for the Packers. And yeah. you know they're contenders right now. Yeah, or he can go to Pittsburgh and play with his brothers. All three brothers on the same team, like yeah. that's some special stuff right there. So, um, I would those would be my two favorites, but we'll see what happens. I, I think the Chicago Bears should be in this conversation because his wife plays for the Chicago soccer team as well. I'm just thinking NFC North. He's just kind of got that whole Viking vibe and. Paul Bunyan and with the axe. And uh, I think that he would make an instant impact in that, that division. W- what is it like as a player to be, because you, you were with the 49ers when they had, I was there, you know, they fired the the head coach, Chip Kelly and, and the general manager. What, what is it? What is it like as a player to be in a locker room when you're in your organizations in a complete rebuild? Um, It's tough. You know, I, I remember looking at my phone two years in a row on the exact same date saying like, hey, just want to let you guys know that uh, I had two text messages from this like random number. Hey, just want to let you guys know that we're relieving such and such of their duties. That we're relieving such that same generic text message two years in a row. And so it's tough when you're doing that, especially it was, it was extremely tough for me. I struggled with it. Yeah. Um, coming from Baltimore and knowing that we had the opportunity to compete each and every year. Yeah. And then when I signed to San Francisco, it didn't look that way. Yeah. Uh, it just didn't. It didn't look like a, a rebuild at all. And it was tough for those two seasons for me personally, you know, not really being involved in the offense. Like, you know, you have a, you put a bunch of pressure on yourself as a player too. You know, I was signed to the San Francisco 49ers to be a difference maker. Yeah. And I had never been one to really want to, like, demand the ball or do anything like that because yeah. it just naturally happened in Baltimore and we were winning. But then when you're losing and you feel like, man, I can do more or – I want to be involved. I'm having games where I'm literally having zero targets. Uh, I mean, it was stressful because you're like, man, now they're paying me more. It's different. You're in your little rookie deal. It's like, man, they're paying me to be here. And it's like, I'm doing nothing. Right. I'm and ain't not look. I'm not doing anything. I'm not getting the ball. I'm not really getting chances. And it's like, how do you prove your worth? And I think that honestly consumed me so much uh, to want to do my job out there, but I'm glad they got it right now. I think, you know, leadership there is is great. I always love Jed York. You know, I always I thought I love yeah. Jed. I used, when people used to talk bad about him, I'm like, no, nah, I like Jed. You yeah. know, he's young. He's he's a great guy. You know, obviously he's figuring it out. He's younger in that position, but I think he has it right now um, with the coach and GM that they have. I, I agree. And although I don't think Jimmy Garoppolo, I think he's going to be heading over here to the East Coast and 45 minutes down the street. But I do I do like what they've done. I think that that defense is going to be a top a top five defense. Once again, they were decimated with injuries. Funny that you were talking about Jed York. I, that During that press conference, I think the only people that really hate him are the media. Because there right. was one girl that was like, how do you not fire yourself? 
like, how do you feel like you are you're qualified to have this job? And he he said, I, I'm the owner. I don't fire myself. And then someone rebuttaled and they said, oh, you know, are you talking about like, I remember when you were you were sitting on Joe Montana's lap. It just got it got really racy. Like it's just like you could tell that, you know, that's not that was not a happy home a couple of years ago. Right. And it's changed. It changed. I mean, they got to the Super Bowl. That happened fast, you know, and, and he has to get credit for the decisions that he made and allowing people to do their job. Yeah. And it's not it's not. I mean, it's it's not easy to do, and I think for him, even the question of like what makes you qualified, like, yeah, football is not rocket science. Get yeah. good people in place <laughs> that are well respected, well coached. Hire you a committee like the Houston Texans, but actually listen to them, and you might actually move in the direction that you're supposed to go. I, I need to ask the question because it's on everyone's mind, and I just need your perspective on this. Being a free agent right now. Um, is playing for Bill Belichick, um, you know, a draw at all? Or did our veterans only going to sign in New England if a guy named Tom Brady is under center? Like, I, how are the Patriots going to move forward um, just given the mess that they that Brady left behind? I feel like he he really, what he did in the Super Bowl, winning his seventh ring, he just set the Patriots free agency market on fire. Like is is playing for Bill Belichick a lore right now? I because he's that's just it's not fun, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, Benjamin Franklin heals all wounds, so uh, you you pay guys are gonna come. So I mean, that's just the reality of it. Um, it's still a a place that people want to play, um, even though it's it's tough to play. It's more like that college standard. Um, yeah. The reality of it is, there there are winners there. You know, they have the ability to win. And you know you're a part of a rebuild, but again, they get a uh, their quarterback situation fixed. They get guys healthy. I mean, they could be right back in the thick of things again. So uh, we'll see what happens. But I tell you, there's never a team that's off the record when they have money. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just depends on if Bill's willing to spend it. Typically, he doesn't pull the trigger on big deals, and I think a lot of people are anticipating that. He's going to be doing much of the same this offseason. If you were to sign at any team right now, you're a free agent, youthful Tory Smith has come back, who would you sign with right now? Um, Kansas City. Yeah, I was just going to say. Eric the enemy. <laughs> right, Kansas City. I think that's easy for an offensive guy. Um, I like Baltimore a lot. I think San Francisco is a, a great place to sign. I mean, um, I mean there, there are so many different – Teams that are, are very talented that have a chance. I think for me, the balance is always like, if I could get my advice to anyone, it's obviously get your money. Yeah. But take care of your chicken. Yeah. Protect, take care of your chicken. Protect your mental. The whole nine words of Marshawn Lynch. Yes. But also, go to a place where you can win because yeah. you have, or that you can compete. No, nothing guarantees that you'll win. But there's nothing like playing a game or playing in a season when you know what it's like to win. And it's like, this isn't right. Like, yeah. it stresses you out. Like, you don't even realize it. So it's like sometimes, like, oh, well, this team's paying me a million dollars more than this team. But this team is in a whole blender over here. Like, no, like, go. It, it sounds crazy. But go elsewhere because you may actually be able to live out your contract and be happy. So yeah. um, the point of that story is 
money doesn't solve everything. So find that balance to make sure that your money can fix those problems and that you can still be okay. Literally, I just had Rob Ninkovich on our last episode and he literally said more or less the same thing. The reason that he retired, he was like, all right, I was looking at my $2 million salary after taxes. You know, is it worth it? 800K to bang around my head and possibly put myself out for my career. He made the right decision. Uh, right before you go, I know that you were very vocal about, um, having COVID and how much of a struggle that was for you and your family to go through that. Are athletes really, uh, what is, is, is it still affecting athletes weeks afterwards? Like, is, is that kind of theory about why Cam Newton started to struggle and, you know, among others, I know Jason Tatum basketball, I mean, he's really struggling with the after effects of COVID. Like what can you say about athletes that are, that are still feeling kind of that lingering effect of the virus? I believe it. I mean, I'm still fatigued. Like I had this routine that I created finally, that was the biggest adjustment for me retirement-wise, creating a routine. I finally had a routine. I'm working up, waking up 5.45. I'm doing my thing. I'm working out, getting ready. I see my kids, go to the little office spot that I rented, you know, doing my work for the foundation and some personal things that I'm working on. Yeah. And then I get sick, and waking up is hard. Like, it's extremely hard. Working out crushes me. Like it takes everything out of me. So I understand how a guy may not be the same because you go through the day, your energy is not like my energy isn't all the way back. Like it's it's different. So I understand a guy and I don't have to compete. I'm just a regular retired guy. So I can't imagine the traveling, your sleep schedules all. That's a lot easier to do and and manage when you're hundred percent. But when you aren't, I can definitely see why players are, you know, feeling some long-term effects. That's crazy. When, how long ago did you get it? It's been, I had it, I got tested positive like a day or so after my birthday, January, about January 27th, I believe it was. Oh. Wait, January 27th of this year? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, I just, I I just, yeah, I just got on quarantine like, you know, a week or two days ago. Oh, wow. Well, I'm so glad that you're feeling better. I, you know, what could be better? It's like, you know, going back to work or doing an interview during an earthquake. I know that you (laughs) What happened with that? What was that? I mean, listen, it's not every day on the East Coast that you feel an earthquake. All right. Where where were you? I was outside outside in Baltimore on the football field doing a hit for Maryland that they play in the stadium. I have Maryland pride. That's the line that they play during the before football games. They do it at basketball games too with former athletes um, and the current ones. Yeah. I was sitting there and it felt like a wave came from under me. Like, um, and it was just like, whoosh. And I was like, <laughs> what? Like, like my whole body just started moving. Like my legs moved faster than my body. Like it was the craziest feeling ever. Like, I don't know how people live in areas where you have earthquakes. Like that was crazy. The only time that I had it, well, I, I went, I experienced two earthquakes. They were about like two days away from each other in LA. And I was, I was in my bed and I was like moving like this way. So the only times that every time I was in my bed, I was like, Oh, earthquake, I'm safe. But the second time it like, re- it lasted like 40 seconds, man. Like, and it, all the, the glass was jingling and things yeah. are moving left and right. I was like, oh, I don't feel good about this. No, but luckily yeah. it was safe. 
Yeah, I'm not. I don't play around with earthquakes. Like, period. I'm like, let me stay over here where I am, and I hope I don't ever feel that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tori Smith, where can we find you? Have a podcast of your own, trying to compete. Yeah, you, you are. You are your own favorite uh, social uh, social media personality. Like, you know, absolutely. You know, well, you know where I am. If you want the drama, come to at Tori Smith W R T O R R E Y Smith W R. And I talk about everything. You know how I am. You know, I might be talking about football. I might be talking about parenting. I might be talking about politics. I might be talking about yeah. race. I might be talking about food. You just never know. I talk about everything. Like, and my podcast is called Trending Thoughts because similar to my Twitter page, you never know what's going on. I'm going to talk about what's trending in my life or in the real world. And just, just talk when it's a good time. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. This was fun. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. All right. In the essence of timing, two fantastic interviews that I had to put together into one because Tori was earlier in the week and Seth was yesterday. I think that there is a need for me to devote at least 30, 35, 40 minutes to diving into the dysfunction of the Boston Celtics. I know I said it off the top of the show, but uh, we're going to hit that next week in great form. Trust me. Plus, pitchers and catchers, ooh, they are letting fans back into the stadiums and arenas. <gasps> oh, I'll tell you which team I'm most excited to go see. I think it will surprise you. All right, we'll see you next time. I see my red door. I